Welcome to the Arts and Sciences Matters podcast, brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Georgia State University. This is your host, Anna Varela. Our goal is to bring you insights from researchers working on a broad range of social, cultural, and scientific challenges. Our guest today is Sierra Carter, a psychology researcher whose work focuses on racial health disparities. Today, we're talking about her research into the relationship between racial discrimination and signs of serious health problems among African Americans. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Carter. Good to be here. So your most recent study found that early life stress from racial discrimination puts African Americans at greater risk for accelerated aging. Before we dive into the results, could you tell us a little bit about how you conducted the study? Yes, of course. Um, So this study actually started... A while ago, actually in 1997, was when we originally started collecting data. So before I even joined the team, and this is the family and community health study um, Mm -hmm. conducted primarily at um, University of Georgia as well as Iowa. And so when they started collecting data, they were looking to have a diverse set of participants to participate in the study and ask a diverse set of questions around health and wellness within diverse communities. So it included a unique sample of primarily African-American participants, both mothers and children, um, in urban, rural, suburban, metropolitan areas that were based on census data. Mm-hmm. So it was a specific target of trying to understand different issues related to stress and wellness and health, and as a diverse set of population that we could find. Mm-hmm. And where were these subjects located? So the subjects were lo- located in Iowa as well as Georgia, so here. Um, and the reason for that being was where the primary investigators were at the original time. And also, um, we looked at census data to really try to get that diverse sample. So we used mm-hmm. urban and rural populations in Iowa and Georgia um, based on how census data were saying people were located, where they were most located at, particularly African-American populations, mm-hmm. and also giving a broad range of SES. So we had... Socioeconomic so- status. Yes, yeah, socioeconomic mm-hmm. status to understand including low-income but also higher-income African-Americans and their experiences with some of the things that we researched as well. Okay. And I think uh, you've mentioned that that included a lot of survey questions that people took part in. Yes. And also um, people giving blood samples. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so um, we like to break them up into waves because this is a long study. We call waves, it's just time points. Mm-hmm. So even though this started in the late 1990s, this has been going on until now. And so we started doing a lot of survey data, but also getting some what we would call physiological data at the time when we first started. The survey data included things like assessing racial discrimination for both child and mom um, mm-hmm. or caregiver. And then we also started doing blood dra- uh, draws at wave seven. Wave 7 was around 2014 to 2015, Um, and the reason behind this was we were starting to see that, you know, our participants were getting older and they were staying in the study, Mm -hmm. and we wanted to understand more in-depthly what was happening to the body over time. One thing that we know is that when we're young and we're in our 20s, we're not really showing a lot of signs for chronic illnesses that we typically see disparately in African-American communities like cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, hypertension, 
And so one window into understanding that is these blood draws allow us to look at things like accelerated aging Mm -hmm. um, in a way that helps us understand through things that I can explain later as gene expression um, and and understanding what is happening to the body that's related to chronic illness even early in life. So you're showing, even though your biological clock is showing your age right now, we're able to look in these blood, blood draws at cells that are showing that the gene expression is on, meaning that you're more physically dis- dysregulated and also showing a gene pattern, expression pattern that is consistent with um, precipitating towards getting certain chronic illnesses earlier on in life. So you're asking people about their experiences with racism, mm-hmm. including asking people when they were as young as 10 mm-hmm. about their experiences And then also looking at their blood and tell us a little bit more about what it is you're looking at in the blood and how that relates to people's self-reported experiences. Right. And so when we're getting this racial discrimination experiences at age 10, like you said, they are self-reported measures. But I think it's important to note that these kids at age 10 are able to report on their own, individual experiences of racial discrimination. And we're looking how that is associated when they're getting older. So Mm -hmm. at age 29, what is that looking like with their accelerated aging that we find through these blood draws? And when we do these blood draws, we're a phlebotomist looks at, um, collects this data, and then we look to see how gene expression is happening and gene pathways that are leading to um, accelerated aging processes. And so um, one of the things that is important to think about is how, if you think about different types of stressors, how that leads to dysregulation in body systems. Mm-hmm. And the way that you know we think about this, and a number of other research scholars have thought about this, is when you experience things like racism, but even other types of stressors, it's really hard for your body to calm down, um, especially if it's a chronic stressor, so something that's mm-hmm. not ending. So um, usually our body, um, when we experience something that's stressful, it's a healthy reaction to have a body that's on alert, right? So mm-hmm. like you can think about if you see a bear, your body should be <laughs> on alert to run or to, fi- mm-hmm. to fight or flee, But when it's a stressor that is ongoing, that is not ending, your body is always on this high alert that is never calming down. And we call this, you're not able to reach homeostasis. You're not able to reach this balance. Mm -hmm. And when your body is always dysregulated, it shows itself in this physiological dysregulation. And as well, you can see this in the blood and how your gene is continuously turning on and never turning this natural decline, this natural state of reaching calmness and balance. And you can see this, the blood draws are showing, like, if this continuously happens over time, this can lead to chronic illnesses um, earlier on in life than if you weren't experiencing these types of stressors. So this association is showing um, showing that it's validating some of these um, thoughts on how stress works, Mm -hmm. right, and how that stress works with the body, especially when it's chronic and cumulative and not ending. Mm -hmm. Were these results surprising to you? I wouldn't say necessarily surprising, Mm -hmm. but I think it is something that validates Um, a number of thoughts on how stress affects the body. But I think what makes it 
somewhat surprising for a number of people is that racism is what we're studying. Mm -hmm. And usually when we think about chronic stressors, we think about other types of stress, including things like trauma, life event stressors, such as death in a family or divorce. Mm -hmm. And we think about these life events that are really stressful and these traumatic events as stressful. And we have a ton of research literature showing how you know, trauma and uh, these types of stressors affect the body over time, mm -hmm. but not as much on how uh, the chronic stress of racism is really affecting the body. So I think what becomes surprising is, one, kids are reporting <laughs> this racial discrimination because um, previously in research, you would think in the 1970s, I would say, um, was thinking, oh, maybe kids don't really understand racism. You know, their intellectual capabilities at that point in time or cognitive abilities are not quite there to understand what's happening. But now we know, yes, <laughs> they are not only experiencing it, but actually able to acknowledge that this is happening. And then two, that this stressor or racism is working just the same as some of these other chronic stressors. And it's a unique stressor for certain populations that are marginalized. So it could be helping to explain some of the health disparities that we see in certain populations that disproportionately experience some of the chronic health problems that we see in mm -hmm. our society. Could you talk a little bit more about racism as a form of trauma that can seriously impact mental and physical health? Yes, uh, I, this is a really growing area of research, uh, this consideration of racism as trauma. Um, and I think it's an interesting one because there are a number of pockets of researchers who have different viewpoints and different theories about it. And I think where it comes in is the acknowledgement piece that I've been speaking on before of understanding is racism a traumatic experience? Mm -hmm. And from a clinical psychologist's point of view, um, there's nowhere in our diagnostic manual for racism. Mm -hmm. So the experiences of post-traumatic stress disorder, the trauma that, uh, that can lead to those things include things like gunshot wound, being um, shot with a gun, including sexual assault, um, hurricanes, car accidents, um, even, you know, being one of the people who respond, um, responds to really traumatic events. That first could, responders. First responders, right. People in the military. Right. So that's how we typically think about it. But racism mm -hmm. has never really been considered in this framework. And some theoretical researchers have really thought and conceptualized it. It seems like <laughs> some of these experiences should be considered as just as traumatic as some of the other things that we have been discussing. And the, although our diagnostic manual doesn't show this yet, maybe it should. And so I think we're at the stage now of trying to understand, does um, racial discrimination experiences also have similar symptom patterns as some of these trauma experiences do? If so, maybe racism should be considered traumatic. But if not, maybe this is a unique stressor that also has a number of different outcomes, um, including PTSD. It could be if someone has PTSD already, post-traumatic stress disorder, then if they also are experiencing high levels of racism, that could really exacerbate their chronic experiences of mental health issues. So when you don't consider it, and the whole picture of a person, particularly for African-American communities and other marginalized communities, you might understand why we are seeing some differences in treatment responses to 
um, our post-traumatic stress disorder treatments that are evidence-based. We do see in some of our research that African Americans have a lower decline in symptoms from receiving treatments. Less effect, the treatment's less effective? Yes, less effective in the sense that it takes a longer time for them to see decline in their symptoms. So not necessarily that they don't get better. They are getting better, but sometimes it takes a longer time. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, why is that? And some of our thoughts are, hey, maybe we're not understanding the true conceptualization of all the multifaceted stressors that African-American individuals might have to face. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a part of where we're going is you really need to understand the whole experiences of an individual that can be stressful to really give the most helpful treatments. Mm-hmm. Now, how long do you plan to follow the study participants? Uh, for, uh, for a while. So we uh, just uh, have another grant that is focused on this, uh, the, uh, the, group, the same group, but um, doing another blood draw at this current stage. So they're in their 30s um, to get a further understanding of how this accelerated aging um, process is happening as they continue to age. So you can think about if this group continues to follow with the study when they get into their 50s or their 60s, right, we've had this cohort that has started since the age of 10 mm-hmm. being in this study for a very long time, and we're actually going to start seeing some of the chronic illnesses that they actually do develop, right, and also potentially um, some of the signs of early death, right, um, mm-hmm. depending on how long this study continues to get funded. And so I think now that we have funding for this current um, continuous blood draw, another step that we're focused on is understanding areas of intervention um, at this point in time. And so for me personally as a, and professionally, I'm really focused on thinking about how can we understand what is happening when people experience racial discrimination and the process that's happening that leads to accelerated aging. And so one of my findings from this current study was that Depressive symptoms was the mechanism driving the relationship between racial discrimination experienced at age 10 to accelerated aging at age 29. And what I think this shows is that that mental and physical health shouldn't be these separate things that we discuss. They shouldn't be dichotomous. And when we think about it that way, if we can think about interventions that we already have, because we already have evidence-based treatments for depression, if we can understand what is happening when you experience the stressor of racial discrimination, are you getting angry? Are you getting anxious? Are you getting depressed? Our study shows you're feeling depressed, right? And if we can identify who out of these group of people who are experiencing racial discrimination, who is showing the highest trajectory towards depression, because we're following them, them, them through time, we can we understand who, which group needs this intervention that we can provide to them? Obviously, the optimal intervention would be to end racism in our Mm -hmm. society. That would be wonderful. Um, But I think we have a while to go for that to actually happen. But we also are still seeing these um, really dire effects of racial discrimination experiences over time. And maybe we can use the treatments that we have as clinical psychologists to provide interventions for individuals who are showing these effects from the stress of racial discrimination towards depression. And on the flip side, not everybody who's experiencing racial discrimination are showing these high trajectories towards depression. And if we can understand what is helping these individuals to cope with racial discrimination, whether that be 
community involvement, having someone to speak to, having self-regulation strategies that they turn to Mm -hmm. in the face of racial discrimination that offsets what's happening. And we can understand that. We can provide extra tools to the individuals who might be most at risk for these negative effects of racial discrimination that they can utilize in the face of the things that we know are happening on a day-to-day basis for some individuals. Mm -hmm. So trying to figure out why are some people more resilient and Mm -hmm. how can other people learn from that? Right, exactly. How did you first get interested in studying the relationship between racial stress and mental and physical health? That's a good question. I would say it's probably both a personal and professional journey that I've had through time. I actually would say it probably started when I was an undergraduate student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill when I first took my, my very first black psychology course. And I got a true understanding that I felt like a lot of the things that we were learning in our classes were related to what I was seeing in my own communities as well as my own family members. And really, it led me to ask a lot of questions that kind of all revolve around a similar theme is, why do African-Americans die younger than other people? And I think that's really just catapulted a lot of my research interest in understanding particular stressors that affect um, African-American communities, because what I see in my community is even when you have healthy healthy diets, exercise, the things that we think make you live much longer, and we know have some really strong effects on living healthier lives, but when you don't have the full picture and people are still dying younger than they're supposed to, is there other stressors that we should be considering in this book that could be leading to dire health outcomes that we need to pay attention to and really thinking about whole body wellness? And that for me, I think we have this long history historical legacy of oppression that I feel like in our society is a really sensitive topic um, Mm -hmm. to talk about, but an important one to really lead to healing in the communities that I think that we serve, because we still, still see these disparities, even though we acknowledge that healthier diet and exercise and not smoking and all these things are important. They still exist for some people Mm -hmm. who are doing all these things. And what does that mean? Are we missing something? And so for me, seeing these things in my own community and seeing them even now in the community that I live in here in Atlanta, it really is a personal and professional goal for me to learn about ways that we can intervene and prevent these outcomes that we see disparately in um, my community. Mm-hmm. What do you feel is the biggest misperception that people might have about your research? That's a great question. I, I think there are potentially a number of misperceptions, but the mm-hmm. one that I think is important right at this time, I think is this misperception that research on racial discrimination is a newer topic, mm-hmm. um, something that we haven't been discussing for a while. Um, when in actuality, black scholars, since you know at least from the civil rights movement, have been really focused on pushing forward that Racial discrimination is this chronic stressor that we should be paying attention to. And I think it's a natural thing to really think about racial discrimination now in our current social political context, especially when we have so many areas to see it, right? Mm -hmm. We have social media, we have the TV screen, we have other things that we can look at. But uh, we know as scholars that people have been studying this for 
decades, and mm-hmm. these historical legacies of racism have been going on since the beginning of time, and people in the community, as well as researchers who have worked uh, in the community, have been noting, hey, this is something we need to pay attention to, and this is important, and look at these outcomes that we're seeing, and um, this is something that is relevant. Yeah, I feel like I would be doing a disservice if I felt like I was the only person who was really focused on this research when I know that there is a strong legacy of really important black and brown scholars who have really focused on understanding racial discrimination as this chronic stressor for the majority of their life, working in communities and focusing on this um, topic and maybe not getting as much of a a light shown on some of their work as um, some scholars are today. So I think it's just really important to understand how long and how much work um, particular scholars have done on racial discrimination since uh, um, the beginning of time. So my last question is one that we like to ask all the researchers, and that's whether you have a favorite book or movie that touches on your work. Good question. Uh, I I wish I had more time to read for fun, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I do, one of the things I do um, in my research lab, my research lab is called the Heart Lab, so it's a health equity agency racism and trauma lab. And one of the things I do, so I do get opportunities to read for fun, is I have them read an excerpt every, um, by every two weeks um, on a uh, topic that is hot in Um, communities that we are related to. Sometimes they pick out the book that I'm going to read for fun, and sometimes I pick them out. Mm -hmm. And so one of the books that uh, we read from one of our lab meetings was a book called Thick by Tracy McMillan Cotton that um, has a lot of interesting and I think sometimes uh, funny stories in it, but also has some very serious ones around um, what it means to be a black woman in the society and how others perceive you um, as a black woman and the multiple identities that can happen, multiple identities that can be influenced by feeling marginalized. Mm -hmm. And um, some of her stories around um, birth and low um, and also experiencing mortality for her child from birth, those types of experiences and what it means to be in a system, a medical system in particular in her case, that doesn't see her as deserving of certain care, um, fits into the research that we do, even if we weren't intending (laughs) for Mm -hmm. it to fit. But I think racism shows itself in a number of different pathways, sadly, and I think importantly. Um, And so one of the things we discuss in our our lab meetings is just how relevant um, some of the stories that our community is telling are to our research that we can't be blind to. And mm-hmm. I think it gives us a unique unique opportunity to say, you know, we're trying to listen to how people speak about their truth in a number of different ways. And I think it naturally fits into some of our goals around resiliency because her story is a story of resiliency. Every time I read it, Um, but also in the face of a number of discriminatory factors and practices that she's experienced that I think are important for us to acknowledge. And our science, I think, is informed by saying, what do we do about this? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, now that we're reading a story that is meant for large audiences, like how does our research actually inform and lead to actual prevention and intervention efforts? And I think that's one of our goals is, 
to listen to the community, listen to society, listen to our public, and take that knowledge and use it to really influence our work. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for spending some time with us today, Dr. Carter. This has been the Arts and Sciences Matters podcast, brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Georgia State University. You can follow us or let us know what you think on Twitter at GSUArtSci. And you can find more episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Thank you for listening, and we hope you subscribe so you won't miss out on future episodes.